I was shooting with my 70 to 200 F4 Canon lens recently. Mm-hmm. And Good lens. I had previously had a 85 millimeter 1.8 Viltrox lens. And then I sold it and bought the 80 millimeter 2.8 macro lens. Right. And what I'm finding is like, if I want that like super creamy bokeh long lens tight compression look, the 80 mil just isn't really the right choice for it. Is it because the bokeh is weird or the focal length? It's because it's not fast enough, I think, is my Mm. main thing. I want to be at like F2. But like once you get past 100 millimeters, 2.8 is fine. And I guess really I just need to eventually get like the 50 to 140. But it just made me think about how I don't think there's enough good long lens options for Fuji. I don't know. But I guess the challenge I would have for you is what would you want to see that they don't have? Because I feel like the 50 to 140 just feel fills the the role so well. So what what would you what do you want to see? I want I want primes. I think that the they make a 200 millimeter f2, which is too extreme. They also make a 90 f2. They make a 90 f2, but I think the 90 f2 is too slow. Too I want it to be slow. under two. I want it to be like. 1.8 or 1. 1.4 would be nuts. Could yeah. you imagine? Ugh. But like they don't, I don't know. I think the, the 90 mil F2 is, is a great lens, but you know, Fuji's big deal is, is size and it needs to be portable and compact. And once you get into longer telephotos that are fast, they're just too big. Mm-hmm. And I think that they don't meet the compromise for what Fuji expects out of their system. Yeah. And so you sense. don't like, like, uh, like this, the Canon, uh, 135, 1.8. Is it 1.8 or is it 1.4? Not sure. Canon. It's a 1.8. Yeah, so they make a IS 1.8, 135 RF mount lens. Mm-hmm. That lens is incredible. And that's that's roughly the same focal length as the 90. Yeah, but it's the, basically but the, the same. Effe- but the effective aperture is a lot better because it's 1.8, but that's on a full frame. Mm-hmm. So it's faster and on full frame. It's over, over stop faster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... I don't know, like that that equivalent type full frame lens, you just don't you just don't have an option for it of something that's that caliber and that speed and that length. And I don't know, like I don't think the 80s right for me for XF. Uh, the 85 Viltrox was fine. I probably I don't know if I should have kept that. I'm happy that I sold it because I do like the macro for what I use it for. Eh, but like the 90s not not right. The 50 to 140 is a great great option, but then that's it. That's everything that's in the, you know, 80 to on 150 yeah. range. I guess your problem with the 50 to 140 is just that it's not fast enough. Yeah. No, well, I think the 50 to 140 is versatile and that's probably what I will eventually get to fill that long focal length region. Yeah. And I'll be very happy with it cuz it's a great lens. But I don't know. I kind of feel like I'm still missing that 85 focal length even though I have an 80. Mm. It might just be that it's the speed or it's you just, maybe it's like the depth of field is what I'm looking for. I don't know. It sounds to me like it's time for you to change up all your lenses again. I should just sell them all and just start over again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Isn't e- it? Easiest option. Viltrox just came out with a 75 millimeter 1.2. That does sound familiar. I think I've seen that. Yeah. So that was, I think that's like five hundred and fifty dollars and i think it like just just came out but no aperture ring or does it i know they've they've got some lenses that do but 
most of those third-party lenses, that's the problem, is they don't have an aperture ring. Yeah, that I'm not sure about. I know that the Viltrox 13mm 1.4 has an aperture ring, mm-hmm. and that lens is basically a first-party Fuji lens. If you're, It's it's the kind of the same problem on the other end, that if you want a really, really fast Fuji Prime, I mean, you know, I think they have a 14 now, but that's 2.8. I mean, the 13 yeah. 1.4 is you know, one of a kind for a food for the Fuji system. Yeah. That's significantly better. Yeah, no, it does. Uh, this, this 75 millimeter 1.2, not 1.4 has a aperture ring for Fuji. Oh, for 550. Okay. Well, that, that makes it more compelling. I think I would maybe, maybe like that's the option for me, but then I would have a 75 and an 80, which is a bit silly. Yeah. That's kind of like how I want to own a 23, a 27, a 30 and a 35. Yeah. That, that's pretty, that's pretty extreme. Mm-hmm. I don't know about that. I feel like once you get in these longer focal lengths, they look really similar. There was a period of time where I was convinced that the Canon 24 to 105 only went to 85 because the framing was almost the same as 85. I remember that. You were about to do like an expose. Mm, and I was everything. like, I've cracked it. And it's just like, oh, no, this is only it, just the framing is slightly different. <laughs> it's really yeah, close. It though. Lo- it like it, at certain ranges, it's like it feels like centimeters different or something. Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah. It does. But I don't know. So that's kind of something I was thinking about this week was. You know, my long lens situation is maybe not where I want it to be. Hmm. I don't know what to tell you. I, th- I think you need that 50 to 140. I mean, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think that you need this other lens that's on my pre-show list, which is the Tamron 11 to 20. And then you'll have the Trinity of Zooms. Yeah, but the problem is that two of that Trinity would be Tamron lenses. Well, then you're going to have to sell the 50 to 140 <laughs> and get the Tamron equivalent when it comes out. <laughs> then you'll just have all Tamron lenses. No, I don't. I can't imagine anything worse. <laughs> you can't imagine anything worse. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a very I mean, good imagination. You could be a, sh- a Sony shooter. Uh, <laughs> Ha! Gotcha. I, I could use those same Tamron lenses, but then I'd also have a Sony camera. Yeah. No, thank you. Ooh, the worst. Yeah. <laughs> I was watching a review on that 11 to 20 because I thought that was that was the lens. Whenever I was going to replace my 16 millimeter, and I was just I was waiting for this thing to come out. But I mean, it took. I bought. I replaced that 16, and then this comes out like six months later. It's it yep. quite a wait. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it has a really good close focal distance. But well, just like the the seventeen to seventy also has an unusually good yeah, which is a nice feature. But it seems that the eleven to twenty at close focal distance has a really bad chromatic aberration. Mm, like it makes it a little not usable. And it's the kind that's hard to fix. Uh, that's a shame. Yeah, but otherwise it seems kind of neat. Yeah, it doesn't. I, I'm just not really into that focal length. I think. I mean, most of the time when I'm using the seventeen to seventy, I'm not shooting at seventeen. I, I just, most of the shots I get, I like to be punched in a little bit more, I guess. So yeah. I, I just can't imagine myself using it much. I, I guess that makes sense. You may, maybe not really in that, in that world. It also doesn't seem like it's, it uh, resolves very well. It doesn't resolve out to the 40 megapixel, which I guess, you know, for all the other sensors, they put this thing on for crop. No one's making a 40 megapixel APS-C. Yeah, so they just didn't design it to why. it. Yeah. And, and even Fuji only has a couple of cameras that do that at this point. So. Yeah, Exactly. So it's not good for your X-T5. Yeah. Does it have stabilization? I think so. It's interesting since it's so wide. Yeah. If it doesn't, I wouldn't be complaining. Yeah, it, it would probably be fine, honestly. Yeah. I don't know. I was so convinced that I wanted that lens, and then when it came out, I decided that it really wasn't for me. Yeah. Yeah, it, I remember you talking about it before, but uh, yep. I don't know. It's, mm. I, I, 
I think if I did want to shoot wide, I'd rather just get like the Fuji 16 or something, like a lens that I know is going to be really sharp yeah. and really good. I've been really happy with that. with that 16. It's still one of my favorite lenses. Right, right next to that 23. I know. You, yeah. you use those lenses all the time. Man, those lenses are great. Yeah. I just, I want, I want what I get out of like my, my 23.14 or my 16.14, but at like somewhere between 56 and 75 millimeters. Mm-hmm. And I tried to buy that 56.12. You tried so I many had, times bought, to buy that. I had three copies in my hand and all three of them were defective. Yeah. No thanks. Impossible. Can't, no can't thanks. do it. And so now I'm like, I, I keep. I'm, it's it's tainted to me. I can't like buy a used copy of it because I'm worried that it's going to be broken. Yeah. Can't be can't be getting those tainted lenses. <laughs> if there's one thing you don't want, it's a tainted lens. Yeah. Well, as as you know, there's like 17 different versions of that lens that Fuji's released. That is true. And the the oldest version was on sale at B and H a month ago for like 550 or 450 brand new. Oh wow! Oh, I came this close. You were tempted. So I almost bought it. <laughs> but what if it had that problem? But it would have been brand new. Yeah. I could like I could have exchanged it. That's I don't know. true. Yeah. And then I could have declicked it, and and then the ca- the casing wouldn't close up. But I know it was my fault. <laughs> yeah. So If I'm the one that breaks it, then it's not tainted. Exactly. Well, I think sounds like a missed opportunity. Yeah. Well, you know, one day. Yeah. One day that lens will come to you. Maybe they can't see. They can't hear me shrug. Like, is there a way I could shrug louder? <laughs> yeah. I'll just I'll announce it every time. Maybe shrug. If you, maybe if you had you know like some sort of jacket made of sandpaper or something. Or, I was thinking know. like a shirt that's bedazzled, but like the glittery parts hang down on strings, and be like shing 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 shing. If if you wear something like that, you're editing that episode. <laughs> Welcome back to the Camera Gear Podcast. I'm Daniel. And I'm Lucas. And we're back today to talk more about the gear we use for photo and video. All right. So before we get into our other topics today, I've got a, got a, um, I can't use that word, man. It's hard to not use that word. I need to talk more about a topic we talked about a few weeks ago. So we recently covered uh, Logic Pro and Final Cut Pro for the iPad. And we said they were going to be coming out. It was exciting times, and I yep. was excited for podcast editing because mm-hmm. that's what we use is right. Logic Pro. Not follow-up. Not follow-up. <laughs> and that has come out today as we record this, and I haven't looked at it extensively, but I've had a chance to try Logic. And You've tried Logic on the iPad? I have tried Logic on the what? iPad. And all of my dreams have been crushed. Really? Because it can't do the things that I need it to do for podcast editing. That's so frustrating. It's kind of this ongoing problem that other people have talked about too. Because a lot of like tech nerds that use Macs use Logic to edit podcasts. But Logic is not really made for podcast editing. It's made for making music. And if you look at all of Apple's stuff on this release, it's, you know, they're showing people like, making beats on the airplane and, you know, doing all that kind of kind of stuff. You don't see anybody editing podcasts. Working on their mixtape. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, it turns out that although Logic Pro for the iPad is really good at letting you play instruments and, you know, change volumes and stuff like that, it doesn't have the kind of, like, precise editing features that you use a lot in podcast editing. So... Like if you wanted to select a region and just like delete part of that region and move everything forward, like that command does not exist on Logic for iPad. What? So you can you have like cut, cut, move. Exactly. Ugh. Yeah. And the pencil support 
is, for that sort of operation is also severely lacking. Like it, you can kind of use the pencil to do it, but again, I would have expected like I could get the pencil and select the region and hit some command and just like delete and move and you can't do that. So maybe they'll add it at some point, but it's not there now. And I mean, it's basically like a total non-starter for editing podcasts. That's really frustrating. It's like we're waiting, waiting all this time. Thought it was going to be really cool. And it's like the one thing you need. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's a shame. So I've got this other app that called Ferrite Studio that I used once to edit a podcast. And it was actually like in terms of being an iPad app, it supports the things that you needed to support and works pretty well. It was a pretty good workflow. I think I might try and edit another episode in that at some point just to see if I like it better than I did the first time. Because uh, I kind of had that impression of it worked, but it was slower than doing it on a computer. And so I don't know if I really want to do that regularly or not. I may try it again. I mean, obviously, I'm also going to keep my eyes on Logic Pro for the iPad, see if maybe they add this feature in the future. And the third option is, you know, there's all this new AI stuff coming out. We've seen things related to podcasts for AI. So I'm kind of interested to see if I can find something else to edit it with. But uh, yeah, it's definitely a disappointment to not be able to use uh, Logic on the iPad. Hmm. Man, I thought I thought I was going to hear the opposite from you. I've been I'm real tied up today. And I know it just dropped. I've been wanting to play mm-hmm. with both these softwares, uh, Final Cut Pro and Logic. And the the headline that I saw for Logic was like, "This is pretty good," and it's basically full featured. Yep. And it sounds like not for the things that you use it for. Yep. Yeah, it's full featured if you're making music. I okay. think it, I think it probably is really good for that. But if you're trying to do, you know, this sort of audio editing, like what you do for a podcast with multiple hosts, it's just not really the right tool. It seems like both Logic and Final Cut coming to the iPad are both like riddled with gotchas almost. Mm-hmm. It felt like whenever Resolve came to iPad, everyone was rejoicing in the streets and it didn't seem like it was so limited that there were problems. But for like for Final Cut, you have to work. You can't use an external drive. Mm-hmm. You can take it to your computer, but you can't take it from your computer to back to the iPad. It doesn't have any sort of like variable adjustments. Like if you're doing like keyframes, you can't ramp the keyframes up and down. It only will do things linear. You can't do video stabilization. It feels like the only things that it's capable of handling are the stuff that aren't like super processor intensive, where it's like you can cut. You can put some light color on there and maybe add some titles and like do the writing thing, but you can't do any, like the number of transitions you can handle are limited. They have like a small media library that you can bring in for music. They don't allow you to bring in custom LUTs. So like you can't even work on Fuji footage in F-Log on the iPad. Man, it's really uh, disappointing to see that because I mean, the iPad has an M1. I mean, that's, that's, we have edited plenty of videos on an M1 processor and it was fine and you can do all that stuff. So it feels like a software limitation. It does. And like the color, the color features in Final Cut aren't, you know, DaVinci Resolve level, but they're, they're fine and they work, but like you can't do, you know, the, the fine like hue gradient curve stuff on the iPad version of Final Cut and Resolve is over here giving you almost the full suite for their color. And it's, it's like, why wouldn't you, why don't you just use Resolve? But you can't 
export out of Final Cut on your iPad. You can't like XML it into Resolve to finish it. You'd have to bring it onto your computer and then export the oh, XML bit to bring it into Resolve. It just it feels it feels super super constrained. Yeah, it's it's like it's exciting that they're that they still care about this idea. And mm-hmm. I mean, seeing anything in this regard is exciting because I think it makes us hope that maybe they'll keep adding more stuff to it. But it's a shame that they've waited this long to do it. And then now that it's here, it's lacking all this stuff. And yeah. you know, it kind of feels like, for us at least, kind of feels not really usable. Right. Like I'm happy that it's there. I'm happy that they did it. And I want, them, I want to see it improve. And I hope people subscribe to it that shows that we're, we're interested in Final Cut Pro for iPad. But at the same time, yeah, it's it's it still doesn't have the pro features needed for pro workflows, and it really feels like iMovie Plus. Yeah, that's a shame. I don't yeah, know, definitely a shame. But also, I haven't I haven't tried it. This is yeah. just I've been watch watch few reviews and I've been reading about it, and I'm like I'm gonna dive in and I'm gonna edit something in this, and I'm gonna probably have even more complaints. Yeah, well, it'd be good to try it, and then we can talk about it uh, once you had a chance to do that. But yeah, I did see that they released so they released an update for both of the. Uh, both of the Mac apps, so for Final Cut and for Logic, you know, probably to support, uh, you know, the the round tripping type mm-hmm. workflows. But one thing is that in the Final Cut Pro for Mac, I saw they added the scene masking thing. Oh, good. Yeah. So that kind of gives me some hope that maybe some of those cool features that they're putting in the iPad version, you know, maybe they'll be bringing those to the Mac too. I'm curious to see if it's as good as Magic Mask. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Because I mean, that was, that was that's the obvious comparison. Mm-hmm. And it's felt really conspicuous that uh, Final Cut Pro doesn't have that. And so right. it's cool that they've added it now, but I don't know how it compares. Magic Mask is impossibly good. I just don't understand how it can do what it can do. Yeah. I mean, stuff like that just saves so much time. I mean, that's I'm, that's why I said I'm kind of interested in looking to see if there's some AI tools we could use for this podcast because this stuff's getting so good. And I mean, it's like some of these menial tasks, it just makes it dead simple. Right. Anyway, anyway, there's more. There's more on these topics. I have I have a whole section here on the on the eighteen point five beta three that just oh, came out man. for Resolve. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and talk about that then. Yeah, let's let's jump over. Okay, so I really there's just so many so many features. I mean, this we could we could start at eighteen point one and then list every feature for eighteen point one, eighteen point two. Sorry, eighteen point five beta one, beta two, and beta three. And by the time we finished listing all the features. That would, that would be the whole length of the podcast. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we could do that right before or right after you review a Fuji film simulation. Man, that would be, Similar that would be a time. killer episode. It really would. So I skimmed through all of the things that they added for beta three. Yeah. And I threw down a bullet list here of my top, I don't know, 11 items that I think are really are most impactful for me that I'm most excited about. So here we go. All right. Let's hear it. Okay. They added up to two times faster spatial noise reduction on Apple Silicon. That and mean, as that, someone that, who edits on an M1 Max now, I am pretty pumped about noise reduction being twice as fast. I mean, that that is pretty significant because noise reduction is slow. Yeah. Spatial noise reduction just it like fans ramp, everything heats up. It, re, it really slows things down. I mean, it'll take a, even just from rendering, it will take your render from like 10 minutes to 40 minutes. Man, I can't wait to see what it's like, uh, you know, doing noise reduction on a project with this change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm really, really excited to see that. The next one, they made it so you can split and join adjacent clips in the cut tab. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I'll, you'll I'll split clips, but I never know how to bring them back together. Uh, now you now, know. Now I can. They're, uh, now You can now stabilize multiple clips at the same time. You select them and do two. 
That's handy. Yeah. It's, it was annoying to be like, okay, I have to stabilize these 10 clips. And you can't just like select all of them and hit stabilize. Well, now you can. I didn't know you couldn't do that. I mean, on a lot of projects, you end up, you know, you film a bunch of shots in the same scene. And you know that they all need that stabilization because you kind of shot them, you know, in the same situation. And uh, yeah, that's any anytime you're going through and like click the clip. Click the setting, click the clip, click the setting. Like, that's super annoying. So that's mm-hmm. that's great. Yep. So really great ad there. Super excited. Uh, they added it so that whenever you retime in like your command R or whatever, it will automatically bring up the speed curve by default instead of the other control, which is just the, the like the la- line tab thing where you like click the drop down and whatever. Because usually if you're going to ramp and resolve, you have to like hit the command and then you have to hit a button then you have to hit a different button just to get the speed mm-hmm. curves up to do the thing and now that's the default. I always felt like that that was kind of a simple example of something where Resolve was slower than Final Cut doing speed ramps. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like this maybe helps a little bit. This gets you to where you need to go faster but I still think speed ramping in Final Cut is going to be faster than this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just, so, it's just so quick and natural in Final Cut. Mm-hmm. Okay. There is an option to copy grades from flattened multicams to multiple cam angles so if you have you know the same like for us when i will often shoot with two xh2s's and you know you want to copy from one to the other well if you flatten the clips you can still copy to the other other oh, cam. cool so and anything that makes it easier to like move grades around because mm-hmm. in right now in resolve if you flatten a multicam uh it it drops the grade like it because uh-huh. it, it's whenever you apply a grade to a clip and it's a multicam it uh, doesn't resolve sees it as a multicam file it's like this is multicam one or whatever you called it and so it, it treats it as like a whole separate file and not as the like the underlying clip and so this is this is nice to be able to you know apply those in different ways so that you don't have to like recopy paste grades as you're flattening pieces and making changes i'd like to see some more changes in this area because when we work on multicam projects i find it frustrating that if you because because it's like you edit with multicam clips, but then if you want to do any cropping or zooming or anything, it feels like you want to flatten it down so that you have, you know, like an independent clip. Right. But then I wish there was a way to go back. Mm-hmm. Unflatten or change the angle or something. Yeah. Cause that's what happens. Like we, you know, you flatten it down so that you can do some adjustment, but then later, you know, maybe make a different cut and then, oh, I need a different angle in the spot. I want to be able to unflatten it back to the multicam clip so that I can change that angle. I agree. That would be really nice. Uh, It doesn't look like that's in here yet, but maybe one day. Maybe one day. Okay. What else do I have here? The ability to select all clips under playhead in cut, edit, and fairlight. Oh, okay. That's kind of cool. A little quick short key, you know, select everything under your playhead. Sounds useful. Yeah. I would like to be able to do that and then command B. I'd be like, command whatever this is, then command B. Just slice all the things. Yeah. I mean, because like right now I'll just like link everything so I can, I can, it makes it easier for me if I'm zipping through something, if I can link all of my clips and then cut through everything at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is, this is going to be nice. I will, I will absolutely use it. Cool. You can automatically detect and create captions from timeline audio. That is pretty cool. Yeah. So that's like visual. That's not transcribing. You're talking mm-hmm. about like subtitles. It's like the next thing. Yeah. You can throw captions on there. I, that wasn't there before. It was just transcript. And now uh, it's, now nice. you have captions. That is pretty cool. Yeah, that's a nice ad. Do you have any of the transcript stuff in this? Because they made changes Mm-mm. to the transcripts. No, I, I so they made a lot of changes. Yeah. These were just like the things that I'm most excited well, about. I was interested in some of the transcript changes because one thing they added was that you can remove silences. What? So if you're a you know if you're 
a traditional YouTuber making your A-roll, maybe you want to just cut out all the silences. You can do that now. Curious how that, how does that work? Is it? I haven't actually tried it yet. I haven't tried it yet, but I think once you transcribe it, you know, I think, I think basically they've, they've added a thing that shows you in the transcription that there was a silence in that spot. Because right now it doesn't. Right now it doesn't show you that. Like in ba- in beta right, two right. previous, it didn't really show you that. And I think they added a thing where now it will show you that you know there was five seconds of silence or whatever. Ooh. Premiere has this feature, right? Um, and I think there's a way to remove that. The other thing they did is that now I think when you do the transcription, I think you can just delete parts of it. So like, you can get the transcription, and I think you can just like delete a paragraph from it. And I imagine what that does is like takes that clip out of the. Like it's like a subtract- rather than having to select your in and out points, you can subtract the yeah. piece that you don't want. It's like subtractive editing rather than yeah. additive editing. Because normally the way we would do it is like you get your transcript and you grab the little clips you want and drop them down. And now I think they have the way to remove stuff instead of just adding stuff. Which again, I'm thinking about this through the lens of like if you're a solo you know video creator and mm-hmm. you're making your a roll video, this just sounds fantastic because you could just look at your whole transcript. Find the takes that look good, delete everything else, remove the silences, and that probably gets you like 90% of the way there on your edit. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I like it. Yeah. There is another piece here. I think this is related to cut, which is you can add and delete keyframes using the keyboard shortcut. Okay. That's uh, that's useful. I, I remember going through some of the keyframe stuff and kind of being confused at, at some things missing. So that sounds mm-hmm. like it solves some of that. Yep. So kind of filling, filling out some of those features. Mm-hmm. They added the ability to resync misaligned synced clips, which I think is a cut tab thing for the multi-cam version or whatever, but okay. making it easier to resync your, your unsynced clips. And that, that, that's kind of nice. Yeah. This, I wonder if this is also where, you know, if you have a video and audio and you kind of move your video over it, it'll show you like negative t- negative 11 or whatever to kind of show you it's out of alignment. I wonder if this may also makes that easier to bring those things back into. Yeah, good question. Back into union. Good question. They have new vertical resolution timelines and project defaults for full frame with crop. Huh. So basically, like if you have a if you're doing a vertical and you're dropping in stuff, it will bring it in to fill the frame by default instead of the other Ooh, way around. That sounds useful for us. Yeah, it does. I like That's it. It's great. That's why it's on my list. Cool. Up to thirty percent faster Apple ProRes hardware accelerated encode. Just a casual thirty percent improvement. Yeah, if you're encoding <laughs> Apple ProRes, that making proxies, boom, thirty percent faster all oh, of a sudden. That's uh, that's that's pretty great. I'm telling you, this is a this, like, this is just beta three, and they're yeah. still adding features. I thought the whole point of like doing a beta was like we're done. We just need you to test this so we can like iron things out. Yeah. No, adding features still. Different companies do that in different ways, and I, one of the things that I think that I thought was interesting about this is yeah, I heard in a video recently that. The 18.5 beta, you know, like when they were done with those features and ready to release it, they really would have rather just made that 19.0. And the only reason they didn't is because they were too late in the cycle and going back and changing that version number to be 19 is, you know, not an insignificant amount of work. And so they just left it as 18.5. But I mean, the amount of features they've added in this 18.5 beta cycle is just crazy. I mean, it's more than most other applications would add in like a full version release. Yeah, it's huge. It's just such a giant update. I mean, we're we're both running the beta because there's just so many features that complete workflows that like expe- expedite your video editing, and it mm-hmm. just it's fantastic. I mean, honestly, 
they've done more in this 18.5 release than Final Cut Pro has done in the last like three to five years. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, it's, for sad, real. it's sad to say that, but that is the case. Yep. So I'm just, I'm just so impressed with it. And I, I think, I feel like this, this has become the DaVinci Resolve podcast, but <laughs> in addition to the Fuji cast and the Nikon cast, <laughs> yes. but oh, well, you know, it's, I'm, I've been really happy with it. So if, yeah. if you're not, you're not on that Resolve train, I mean, it I just, don't know, maybe give it a go. It just feels like that's where the action's happening. You know, like yeah. the, that's where, that's where innovation is. You're seeing tons of people switch to it. That's probably going to lead to even more momentum. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just. I, I think that anybody editing video now, if they haven't tried Resolve, you need to at least give it a try. Yeah, or I'm thinking about it. It's free to try, so it's pretty cool. All right, let's let's talk about something else. Maybe like we can talk about a, a new camera that just yeah, came some, out. Some sort of camera gear. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds good. Mm-hmm. What do you got? Sony released a ZV-1 Mark II. Oh, well, they needed more cameras in that ZV series. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not confusing enough yet. So Now, Daniel, you know, more. this isn't the ZV-E1 which just came out that we already talked about oh, it's ad also, nauseum. It's also not the ZV-E10. And it's also not the ZV-1F. <laughs> this is a new camera. <laughs> okay, so ZV-1 is their one-inch sensor, fixed lens, not fixed lens, but the lens is fixed to the camera. Not Yeah, and, not interchangeable. But it zooms. So non-interchangeable, one-inch zoom point and shoot that's video focused mm-hmm. so like their rx series is the photo focus point and shoot this is the video focus point and shoot yep so some of the big features that they brought to this still no in-body stabilization i don't know if the zv1 had it and they took it out i don't think it did i, I think neither think of them did. did yeah but they added some electronic stabilization which gerald really doesn't like and other people didn't care it's just kind of weirdly digital that they added they added some of the features from the ZV-E1. You're not getting all of the AI chip stuff. They're not doing like the smart reframe and all that stuff. You have to go you have to go all the way up to that, you know, ZV-E1 which is $2200, $2400. I, I imagine the process features. imagine the processor is just too expensive to put that in. Oh, but. and it's probably probably takes up too much battery and that sort of thing. Mm. But it seems like they brought down enough like as much as they could. Like you have the cinematic vlog mode. They added like the dual can the dual microphone thing where it you know, it detects which way to record, and they added a th- internal three-stop ND filter. Yeah, I saw that. That was a noteworthy feature that I thought was good to yeah. see. So that's that's kind of cool. You mm-hmm. know, it's got. I think it has like your S logs in it, and it can do. It can do like 4K 30, 1081 20. You know, kind of all the standard stuff. 20 megapixels. It's it's not wildly different than what came before, but it's a big enough improvement over it that. You know, it seems like it's a decent upgrade. Yeah, I think one of the biggest changes they made was in the lens. So yes. the old one had a, the original ZV-1 had a 24 to 70 uh, equivalent F1.8 F2 to F2.8. So right. the, the variable aperture throughout the range. Uh, the new one has an 18 to 50 that goes from F1.8 to F4. So you're getting, you know, quite a bit wider on the wide range, which I think is really meaningful for the main purpose of this camera, you know, for vlogging and stuff. And then the trade-off is that you're getting, you know, less reach and a lower aperture or a, you know, a higher aperture number at the, uh, at the long end of that lens. So I'm not really sure how I feel about that trade-off, but I do think the wider um, focal length is nice. I think for what this is for, having it start at 18 instead of 24 is a pretty big deal. Yeah. And I think that's totally worth it. 
It is worth noting that if you do shoot with the electronic stabilization, it is a 1.1 crop, which makes this closer to a 20 millimeter versus 24 millimeter mm, comparison. Interesting. And that's not too different. Yeah. It's still appreciably that's wider that I think people would notice and appreciate it. Yeah. But, you know, not as as drastic as if you'd had EIS off. Mm. But if you're doing like a vlog, you know, like a selfie style vlog thing at 18 millimeters, you probably don't need EIS anyway. So. Right. And I think that, you know, what you're sacrificing to get into this system, you gain in portability. Yeah, because it, it only weighs 10 ounces, which mm-hmm. is really, really light. Yep. I was surprised when I saw that. Real light, real small. The lens sinks back into the body when you turn Mm -hmm. it off it's very compact and it's going to have better video than your phone ish uh it's sensor at a one at a one inch sensor Hmm. how big is the sensor in an iphone i guess it's much smaller than that it's it's bigger than a smartphone sensor for sure i thought that the current iphone sensor was like one over 1.3 um maybe i'm wrong which I guess still isn't one inch. That's that's actually a fraction. <laughs> sure is. <laughs> but it's getting close. Yeah. Like, it's getting surprisingly close. I mean, it's not doing as much computational stuff as an iPhone is, which is a plus and a minus. I mean, I think if you want to get into shooting video, something like this is a better tool than something like an iPhone. But, I mean, you know, you're having to buy this extra thing. And it's not cheap. It's It starts at $900. Yeah, I was surprised at that price. I thought it would be I thought it would be cheaper. Me too. It's a hundred dollars more than the last Z V one. And if you were to still, you know, go out and find a Z V one, you can find one for you know about a hundred and fifty less than this camera. So I mean that nine hundred's like pretty expensive. And you know, it that's that's always been the argument for using something like an iPhone. It's like, well, you know, you've got it anyway, might as well just use that. And it is a little bit of a hard sell to say you're going to spend another $900 on this camera. Yeah, it is. It's If it's not, it, you'd want it to be appreciably better. Mm-hmm. I think that it's just, it's a matter of portability and you get more zoom that is optical. You get those built-in NDs. Mm-hmm. You can set your aperture and get like those blurrier backgrounds and that sort yeah. of thing. I do think it is, it is a step up over a phone. I think so too. But I mean, you're paying about as much as you would. If you were using something like a Z50 Nikon Cast <laughs> or um, an R50 from Canon. Yeah. I mean, it, it always comes down to what your goals are because the Z50 or the R50 are going to be a lot less portable. To- so. Totally different market at that point. Mm-hmm. So it's like you might be able to compare it to some interchangeable lens options that are cheaper than this, even including the lens that probably take better video. But they're just not as portable. Yeah. And I think for for someone who needs like a dedicated camera for just shooting video, that's a pretty good option. Yeah. And I yeah. guess it gives you the, the ability to like maybe you just take pictures with your phone, shoot video with this, and then you're not having to like switch between. You kind of have like a dedicated, you know, function tool. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing to point out is that most phones don't have a zoom, really. You know, so if you want to shoot videos of things that are farther away, this is going to be way better than a phone. For sure. I think it has a bokeh switch on it. It does have a bokeh switch on it, which I, I mean, that's a that's a special feature. I don't think my phone has a bokeh switch on it. Does yours? I mean, honestly, if I was using this thing, I'd flip on like skin smoothing and I'd set that bokeh switch to max. So I, don't, I, don't even know, I don't even know if it's like a setting. <laughs> flip that bokeh switch on, turn on that face smoothing. Cinematic mode. I'd be beautiful. Yeah. I want more, as many bars as it can stick on yeah, there. Man. I want to crop it on the sides and the top. <laughs> Perfect. I think that's the way to use that camera. Yep. <laughs> Engage I mean, gonna, all the special I'm gonna features. I'm going to put on cinematic mode and shoot vertical. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Even better. Oh, boy. Okay. 
What what else? Are, what else here, Daniel? Had, should we talk about a more serious camera? Me yeah, you know what? Let's, I, I think this is this is essentially equivalent. Okay, we talked about the ZV one, which comes in white. This is another camera that comes in white. Yes, and in all other respects, it's very similar, right? Exactly. Okay. It, it both white. One's slightly larger, slightly more expensive, smidge more expensive. We're talking about the Red Komodo X. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are. All right, I kind of I kind of dug dug a little bit on this one because you know this thing's coming out ten thousand dollars. The original Red Komodo was six thousand. Yeah, it feels I mean, like a pretty big jump. Yeah, they almost doubled the price, but they're not discontinuing the original Komodo. Okay, so this is like a mid tier or upper tier mm-hmm. model. I think what this does is it splits the gap between the Komodo and the V Raptor, and we're we're talk, talking like just the brain, just the camera component, which is essentially useless. <laughs> the V Raptor, I think, is what sixteen, eighteen thousand yeah, dollars, something that's, like that. I think that's about right. Which is surprisingly cheap for what you get. That's an incredible camera. Mm-hmm. Like that, that price is wow. But anyway, so this kind of splits the difference. And I think that you know, whenever Red came out with the Komodo, they came out with that thing as a crash cam. You know, you use it on your Hollywood production to just get wrecked. You know, get six. It's like cheap old six thousand dollar <laughs> cinema camera, basically disposable. Yeah. And so like it doesn't have super, super great low light performance. And it's I mean, it's super 35, which is obvious as we know, true 35. Uh, So like it's a decent sized sensor, but I don't think it was global. I don't think it was a global sensor. And so there was, you know, maybe a little bit of rolling shutter. I'm probably lying about that. Uh, And you could shoot in 6K. And but like with any of these, you know, raw shooting camera types, you you can shoot like the full resolution of the sensor. And then if you want to shoot in faster frame rates than you can at that resolution, you have to crop in. Yeah, because yeah, it, it just can't handle the data. Yeah, it doesn't do like oversampling because then you're processing the, the data, right? right? If you want the raw image, you just have to crop in. Mm-hmm. And so if you wanted to shoot in anything more than 6K40 on the Komodo, you had to crop in to more than Super 35. Interesting. And that was kind of a jailbreaker for some people. Yeah. And so it was like the crop modes and the and the low light performance just weren't great, but I was like, that's not what it was made for. It was made as like a cheap crash cam. Right. But people were buying it as their main A cam because like you can get into Red Raw for super cheap. And so Red's like, okay, well like let's just make this better and make it so it's more upgradable to something mm-hmm. so you can stay in the red ecosystem and that's what this komodo x is spend a little bit more money up front get mm-hmm. something that's ideally a lot more capable and if you are using it as an a cam maybe that makes more sense yeah so like they added a lot of really cool features here and so i kind of want to run through a few of those like big changes that matter a lot for if you're coming from the komodo and going to the komodo yeah. x cool and for some people that may just it may be up- upgrade worthy and the first one is is obviously the sensor. It's a completely different sensor with a global shutter. So like you don't have to worry about your rolling shutter anymore. And it can record 6K up to 80, 80 frames per second. Okay. So now you, you, you've hit your 60 mark. You can mm-hmm. stay at the full width of the sensor. And it's a global it's a global sensor. So That's like, great. It's, it's fantastic. And the noise performance is about a half a stop better. And so shooting at the same ISOs, you're going to see a half a stop improvement in noise okay so a lot better in low mm-hmm. light better rolling better rolling shutter performance because it doesn't and you know it's it's you can get your 6k 60 6k 80 so what huge improvement other thing that we're seeing is they added a locking rf mount so still the same mount but you now you have like the locking version which is which is really nice cool yeah 
I still don't understand the whole RF red thing. Yeah, it's weird that they chose that lens, especially since Canon has kept the RF mount closed. Yeah, I guess most people are maybe still adapting EF to RF, and so they're just creating the ability for you to use both RF and EF. Maybe. I don't know. But there's no like there's no RF cinema lenses. Yeah. I mean, is it is it do you think it's just part of that crash cam heritage where they're you know, they're thinking maybe you want like a really compact lens rather than using some cinema lens. I don't know. I I don't know. I just, I'm still surprised that red is sticking in the Canon world as far as their lenses. You, it seems like you would use, you, you have to use an adapter. Like you're going to get an RF to mm-hmm. PL or an RF to EF. And then at that point you can use basically any cinema lens you want because it's going to be an EF or PL. Yeah, I don't know why they didn't just make a changeable mount because that's what like the Blackmagic Ursas do. Exactly. You swap out the whole mount. And like, I'm sure the adapters are fine. And honestly, with these cinema cameras, you're rigging it out, right? You're going to put a cage on this thing. Mm -hmm. You're going to have all your lens supports and all that jazz. So you don't really have to worry too much about like the strength of the mount holding the thing. You just want it to like lock on. And I guess if you're using a lock RF mount with with your you know, adapter, maybe that's better. But like the the $20,000 cinema lens that you're connecting to the adapter, is it locking to the adapter? And now you have like a lock on a lock? I I don't know. Yeah. I mean, they must must have researched this. I mean, they they understand their market better than we do, right? So like there must be a reason they did Mm -hmm. it this way, but I just don't know what it is. I mean, if if you were going to pick any one mount to do, I don't know why you pick this over E-mount. I would. I mean, I don't know why you pick this over a locking PL mount. Yeah, especially if it's a cinema camera. I would. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would go straight to PL and then give people the option to swap it out with an E. Yeah, and then I mean, you have, you have so many options if you do mm-hmm. that. Weird, weird decision. I don't know. Well, like that's that's red, right? They're just on that Canon train, I guess. I don't uh, know. Yes. Maybe a lot of people are shooting on R fives and swapping it out with their Komodos. <laughs> Maybe so. Uh, they all new battery system. Previously, they were using. Those um, Canon BL, DL, whatever they're called. Yeah, man, they like, got that. They got that Canon thing going on. Yeah, those Canon cinema batteries, mm-hmm. and they're like the, the the equivalent of like a Sony NPF, but like the B BEF or whatever it's stinging called, and it could support two of those. Mm-hmm. Well, you couldn't do V mount, and so like you had third party manufacturers over here making like Canon to V mount adapters and all this oh, stuff. What a mess! And there's like boom v mount here you go slap your micro small rig v mounts on this thing you're ready to go yeah which is probably what everybody wanted to begin with Mm -hmm. yeah so that's a huge improvement i think they added USB C to the back that allows you to adapt out to ethernet so if you're using this for a live stream setup now you can live stream straight off your red komodo x cool yep so that's pretty good for all Um, all those people live streaming on a komodo i mean maybe (laughs) they changed the media type previously we were looking at cfast now you have cf express oh okay so that's going to be a great upgrade path from your Fuji because you've already got a CF Express card. Yeah, exactly. And I think the CF Express cards cap out to like two terabytes right now. And so I think that means you get, oh, geez, I can't even remember. I think it was like a couple hours of record time or like 40 minutes or something. Silly. I mean, honestly, I think a lot of the other red cameras use proprietary red SSDs. They do. So having this thing use CF Express, I, I mean, obviously a two terabyte card is going to be expensive, but... The fact that you can just buy those from B&H and you can use a third-party reader for it, that's probably a win. I'm looking up how expensive a 2-terabyte CF Express is. $1,500 might be my, be my guess. And I'm just going to click on this B&H link for the Angelbird 2-terabyte because I've heard Angelbird is pretty good. $900. 
That's pretty high, but like I said, I bet it's cheaper than a two terabyte red SSD. Oh yeah, like oh for 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 sure. Yeah, two terabyte red SSD. That did not that that did not come up with what I thought I was going to come up with. <laughs> Looking at Western Digital red drives. <laughs> uh, never mind. Anyway, so CF Express that's pretty exciting. That's a great upgrade over CFast. It's more compatible than what we're seeing. The yeah. only other option that I would have preferred to see was something that supported those uh, NVMe sticks. Oh, you yeah, know, that'd like, be cool. Like the handle system that Condor Blue just came out with that you know for external drive recording. Right on the uh, S5. Have you seen the SanDisk product that they collaborated with to like kind of go with that? No, I don't think I have. It's like this this multi-dock port thing for those types of drives. Oh. And so yeah. if you have like a bunch of cameras that are recording to those sticks, which I think that that would also mean something like the DJI Ronin and the Inspire 3. Mm. But I maybe and, may- and maybe the Black Magic cameras. Because yeah. those can record to an SSD. I may be wrong about that, but I know that it's like a stick NVMe drive for those DJI products. I don't know right. if it's going to reverse. Anyways, whatever. But the SanDisk product, like if you have multiple of those, you can just like dock them. Oh, so you have like cool. one little puck thing that you just dock your USB-C NVMe drives into and then like they all, they all show up on your computer. And so if you're doing like a multi-cam shoot, you can just like bloop, 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 and then bring them all in at once. Pretty cool. So I would I would like to see something like that for this. I mean that would yeah. that would be an improvement to me over CF Express because those drives are going to be cheaper. Sure. And it sounds like it might be even easier to deal with. Yeah, pretty neat. But either way, CF Express is a great option. Super fast media, cool. Other things we're looking at. Uh, we talked about the sensor. We talked about the batteries. Talked about the mount. I think that's basically most of the big upgrades that are worth talking about. You know, like the screen's different. Oh. Last one. It has the DSCM3 pins on the top. And this is something that the Komodo didn't. And that's Red's proprietary mount for like their monitors and stuff. They have certain accessories to support support DSCM3. And so like you can take the V-Raptor monitor and like just pop it on and it works. Oh, that's cool. You don't have to run any separate cables or anything. And like it'll get power and everything from the camera. And like obviously that monitor is whatever like a jillion dollars <laughs> but if you're getting into that red ecosystem and you buy that monitor with the dcd scm3 then whenever you upgrade to a v-raptor or something else you can still use your monitor yeah that's pretty cool uh, it, it does make it seem like they're really trying to get people in the door and you know like get them on that upgrade train it's actually only two thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars for the seven inch red <laughs> monitor it's a little scary that that sounds cheap surprisingly it, cheap for it what does it sound is. cheap yeah, so like it's cool that you know you can now start investing into the system, and like you have the V mounts, and you're gonna be able to use V mounts for all kinds of other things. Mm-hmm. CF Express is great, you know, it's got the more usable sensor, and you have the the you know mount option, the DSCM3. So I think this sounds great. I mean, it it seems like if you were using it as an A cam, this does seem like it's worth the extra cost over the original Komodo. Yeah, for sure. I think all those additions are pretty great. And like they are still selling the original. And so if you like you need something that's cheaper mm-hmm. or you need something to kind of fill that role, you know, this is I mean, this is basically like a V Raptor Mini. Yeah. You know, still pretty. super thirty five and still pretty good. Pretty cool. And you can get it in white. You can get so it in white. It'll match your Z V one and your Z V E one and your Amaran C O B X that was in white. Mm-hmm. And you can get a Canon RF mount seventy to two hundred and put that on there. That'll also sure. be white. Mm-hmm. Or those uh those Viltrox 
anamorphics. Ooh, that's those what, are that's white. what you want to do. Yeah, I mean, this thing supports all those anamorphic modes. Yeah. So, I mean, there you go. Pretty sweet. Yep. So, when are you ordering yours? Man, it's already in the mail, dude. <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, I'm not I'm not getting this camera. <laughs> I think it's pretty cool, though. It is, yeah. yeah. It's good to see stuff like this coming out. Also, it's a box camera, so you exactly. know, instant cool points. I mean, I want, I still want that, like, BS1H Mark II. I know, man. Dream camera right there. <laughs> that would be pretty cool. Okay, tell me about something else that's exciting, Daniel. Uh, good question. Well, there's a Fuji X Summit coming up. Like tomorrow. Yeah. This, this is going to be old news. Yep, yep. Should, should, we, should we let everybody shame us by talking about the rumors and then having us either be right or wrong? I mean, I don't see why not. I think we can go light on it, but you know, what what are they rumored to announce camera wise? The big camera they're they're thinking they're gonna the, the big camera we think they're gonna announce is the XS twenty, which is basically the smaller, cheaper PSAM camera. Right, exactly. And it's replacing the XS ten. Yep. And the rumor is that it's gonna be three hundred dollars more. Really? I didn't see that. That's yeah. uh that's a little disappointing. When I, when I was looking for a second camera, I ended up getting an XT30, but I was looking a little bit at the XS10 because it had really good video features, you know, things like in-body mm-hmm. image stabilization. And I mean, my X-H2S is PSAM, so, you know, same control scheme. I mean, it just seemed like an X-H2S Lite, mm-hmm. but it was a whole lot of an easier sell at $1,000. So that 1300 I mean, it's really going to have to it's really going to have to compete um, to make that work. So what are the, what specs do we have for that? Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's kind of, we kind of have to probably just wait to talk about the specs, but as far as, you know, video capability, 6K 30, 4K 60, and that's, that's pretty good. I don't know if those are going to be with crop. Mm-hmm. I also don't know what processor is in this. I think the thing that's interesting and that's worth kind of, you know, dwelling on for a minute is that it looks like this is the same, you know, NP 235 battery, which I that isn't that the same battery that's in the XT3 and the XT not even the XT4. No, I think the I think the W235 is the uh I'm pretty sure that's the one oh, that's no, in that's, the XH2S. You're right, that's the modern battery. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's a nice upgrade, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the nice battery upgrade, don't really worry about that. But it looks like it is the previous 26 megapixel X Trans 4 uh, sensor. Well, and that's what I was kind of interested in because we've been wondering since that 40 megapixel sensor came out if Fuji was going to do the same thing that they've done in the past where they don't really hold back certain sensors, you know, from different lines. Yep. Because getting getting a 40 megapixel APS-C camera at a $1,000 price point or, you know, even a $1,300 price point would mm-hmm. be pretty interesting. So I'm a little disappointed to see that. Yeah, me too. And like, it's a really good sensor, but like it only has so much read speed and that sort of thing. And they are pairing it with the new processor. So you're getting that X, X processor five coming out of your, you know, XT five, XH two S. And it's just, they're just applying that to the older sensor, that same, same resolution, but not stacked and not 40 megapixels. Interesting. I'm a little disappointed to see that. Yeah. And like, maybe, maybe that's fine. I I don't know. We're just going to have to kind of wait and see and see how it comes out. But I think that it's just going to end up maybe limiting performance on shutter, dynamic range, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a shame. I guess we can circle back to it once the, uh, you know, next time we record, once this uh, summit has happened. Yeah. Is there anything else uh, rumored to, to be announced or released at the X Summit? There's actually a few things that are kind of worth talking about. And, you know, this one of the things for this XS20 that 
is probably coming out tomorrow is, you know, they, they're always kind of trying to play catch up with their autofocus improvements. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of the, one of the headline features I bet we're going to see is something like automatic subject detection. And they're going to say AI and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that's, they're probably going to hopefully announce some firmware updates, things that we've been waiting to see, like bug mm-hmm. fixes and that sort of stuff. And I know that I we're mean, coming. don't get your hopes up too much. Come I on. Know. Well, like we're coming straight off of NAB and, you know, firmware 4.0. So I kind of would be surprised if they're like, and 5.0 or something. That'd be <laughs> I don't know a if little I'd be surprised nuts. at this point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but like some of, there's certain features that maybe haven't made it out to the X-T5 and the X-H2. And I would be surprised Actually, I wouldn't be surprised. I would just be annoyed if they came out with the XS20 and it had new like firmware focus features that don't come to the XH2 and the XT5. Yeah, that could definitely that'd be, happen. That'd be a real big Sony energy move. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of expecting that if they announce some focus features like that, that they're going to then also say, and through firmware, we're going to do this for our other three new cameras that came out last year. Yeah, I hope so. That would be good. Yeah, and that's like, projection but that's kind of what i'm hoping to see Mm -hmm. and uh i also want to see a new lens roadmap fuji has been pretty good in the past about talking about talking for here's here's the lenses that we're going to come out in the next six months or the next year yeah that's good it kind of helps you plan a little bit mm -hmm. and they'll pre-announce things like a year out they'll say oh this is a future lens that we're working on that's going to be you know the roughly this focal length and they for a while they were like we're going to come out with a 33 millimeter f 1.0 lens and then it turned out they couldn't they couldn't build it at that focal length in the size that they wanted to like meet all their the, like the Fujisms that they're trying to hit you know size and weight and yeah blah, I mean blah, blah. It, it's like uh, it's like when you get on the airplane they have the the little box that you put your carry on bag in to make sure it fits they have that but for lenses there's uh, like a little box on somebody's <laughs> desk and, if, and when the engineer makes a prototype if it doesn't fit in that box then they're not shipping it yeah sorry Tim that one doesn't work yep so. Yeah, I mean, essentially, right? And so they 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 shifted gears and they came out with a fifty one point Yeah, but that was pretty opaque because like they published these lens roadmaps, and the only lens that's really been on the roadmap for the last eight months is this eight millimeter f three point five, which doesn't really sound very exciting. I mean, it's pretty wide, pretty cool prime, I guess. I mean, I, I, guess. I think it'll be neat. I think it's going to be neat, but that's probably going to come out tomorrow. And then there's nothing on the roadmap. And so I want to see a new lens roadmap. Yeah, you want to know what to expect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to see that they're going to come out with a new 16 millimeter Mm 1.4. And then I want to see that telephoto lens I talked about earlier that doesn't exist. And I don't know, maybe refresh some of the zooms. Maybe come out with an ultra-wide zoom that's fast. Yeah. I don't know. If If you had one lens that you would want for your camera that Fuji would make, what would it be? Oh, man, that's a hard thing to to just drop on me there. Yeah, no prep. No prep. Honestly, when I think about it, what all I really want is a something like a 16 to 55 stabilized because I don't like using that stupid Tamron lens, but it's like the perfect video lens for everything I do. And if Fuji made something that had, you know, spec for spec was the same, I would probably sell the Tamron and get the Fuji. So I know it's a boring answer, but like I just want them to update the 16 to 55. I would also love to see that happen. I kind of also want something that's like a 20 to 40 f2 or something Mm. weird like a really fast shorter distance zoom that's kind of in that core core range yeah that could be interesting i could go for that yeah i doubt they would do it but Mm -hmm. i don't know yeah i don't know we'll see i hope i I agree i hope they uh 
I hope they announce some stuff just because, you know, it's nice to plan. And if you want to buy a lens, it's nice to know whether it's going to be replaced soon or, you know, if a first party option is going to mm-hmm. become available. So. All right. The last thing that we're expecting that has been promised for a while is a new app and, for your phone. And that is something that everybody wants. Oh, my gosh. They're all terrible. It doesn't matter who manufacturer you have. I, it's true. I don't know why they're so bad. I mean, I my first Panasonic camera I had, I was just taken aback by how bad the app was. And even, you know, it doesn't matter if you spend thousands of dollars on a camera. They are all terrible. My dad was showing me the app on his phone. He's really impressed that he has this app that he can use to control his phone. And he's like, oh, I have this thing and it does this thing. And he's recently been having problems getting it to connect to his Z6. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, oh, Lucas, what do I do to get this to connect to my Z6? And I was like, I don't know. All those apps are bad. There's nothing you can do. <laughs> has he has he gone out and emergency bought a new router yet? <laughs> no. <laughs> But I didn't do anything about it. I wasn't even, I just like, don't, don't go get your camera and don't hand me your phone because I'm not going to be able to fix it because it's garbage. And even if I can't fix it, there's no way that I'm going to be telling, be able to tell you what I did. Yeah. It's just luck. Yeah. It's just, that's just how it is. And it's kind of bad. I'm like, oh no, just like cycle the Wi-Fi on your phone three times, restart it, turn the camera on and off, take out the battery with the battery back in and then connect and it works every time. It's such a shame because these apps seem like they would have a lot of promise. I mean, one of the things that we've talked about on this show is that it's, it's generally like hard to get pictures from your uh, camera to your phone. And that's one reason why it can be nice to use a phone to take pictures and video because it's just like automatically synced into your cloud system and all that. And an app like this, if it was good, could be a solution to that problem, but none of them are good. Yeah, super annoying. I, w- I would love to be able to take pictures with my camera, like on vacation or something, and then I get back to the hotel, I don't think about it at all, and then I pick up my iPad and all the pictures are right there. Yeah, and and there's no reason that shouldn't be possible. It's just, it's ridiculous. Yep, maybe, maybe yeah. I was like, maybe that wouldn't be possible because of public Wi-Fi, but even still... Well, this just totally happened. Do, like, you, do you remember those iFi cards? Did you ever? Yeah. You, you weren't really into cameras back then, but there used to be this SD card you could get that had Wi-Fi built into it. Oh, I was thinking about the ones that plug in your computer. No, no. So this was a an SD card that you put in your camera, and it had storage, but it also had Wi-Fi. And so that was that was the whole promise of that product was that you know basically like you said you could you know go out and shoot pictures, and then when you came back, like I think maybe you had to power your camera on, but basically when it got back on your Wi-Fi, magically it would. You know, transfer all your pictures. They're not really around anymore because most cameras have Wi-Fi built in, right? And, you know, and all that. And but, they have these great camera apps. Yeah, yeah, they had fantastic camera apps. But I mean, that's kind of what that was supposed to be. And I feel like that was at least as good as what we have now. And it's just really sad <laughs> that that's the case. So I just, what I want is Fuji to to crack it, to knock it out of the park, to open, come out of this event. Hey, we made we made the new X app for your phone. You know, iPhone, Android, and I'm like, you can download it, and it just it works. Like number one, it just works, and it works every time, and it makes it super easy for you to get your phone, your your pictures off your camera onto your phone. You know, the uh, the Fuji X100V got so popular mm-hmm. because all the TikTokers were using it. Yeah, and now you yeah you, know, you can barely buy that camera because they can't make them fast enough because it's so popular. And I just think about that sort of use case, and if they actually did make a good app, I mean. It would make that camera even more popular because it'd be like, this is the, you know, casual, slightly better than a point and shoot camera that you can get. And also you can get your pictures and video onto your phone with no hassle. 
I don't think it's a deal breaker for most people. I think everyone's just accustomed to it at this point. I'm just going to, I'm going to have to copy it off with an SD card. Mm-hmm. But I do think that it would be a nice upsell for someone who's trying to like pick between, you know, a Panasonic and a, and a Fuji. Mm-hmm. And the selling point is, oh, well, actually the Fuji has a functional app. I mean, if I was, you know, we talked about, you know, camera for your mom a few months ago. If I was recommending a camera, if if that was a meaningful difference between options, it would weigh into my recommendations too. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe maybe we'll see that. I'm not really holding out that much hope, but that would sure would be cool. It's it's the thing that I'm I'm most interested in. I want to see the lens roadmap and I want to see a good app. Yeah. So and then you know XS twenty for bonus. Yeah. Well, I guess we're just gonna have to wait and see what happens. I, yeah. I hope we see some of that stuff. Yeah, probably gonna talk about it next week, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess so. Okay, there's, I think there's one more thing that's that's worth talking about here, and then maybe we, we call it a wrap. All right. Okay, Peak Design came out with this like new Kickstarter thing. Is it a Kickstarter or is it a new product? I think it's a Kickstarter. And it's called the Micro Clutch. Indeed. It sounds and, like a tiny little purse. Yep, and then I wrote next to it, whenever you put this in the show notes, yes. <laughs> Why'd you write that? Because I want this thing. It's so cute. <laughs> it's like this, like, you know, huh. so I use their wrist strap thing, which... I both, I like love hate because it gets stuck on my wrist mm-hmm. and I don't like having to like clip it on and off. And I frequently like to be able to just hold my camera and I don't want to get one of those giant grip deals because I think like they're, they're just too huge and obtrusive and it's hard to like grab the camera without it. This is essentially the same, you know, here's a little thing to like tuck your hand under so that you can, you don't have to hold the camera as tight, but you're not going to drop it. But it's tiny and it fits perfectly on your Fujifilm X-T4, X-T5 or X-T3 or X-T30 mm-hmm. or X-T200 or X-T1. And and also other brand cameras, but mostly Fujis. <laughs> well, that's what's in all the product photos, honestly. <laughs> it's a, It looks like a, a really fat rubber band I mean, I and, put, and it's about big enough for two fingers to fit through. Yep. I would put this on a ZV-E1. Yeah. It'd be kind of cute. There you go. They're, sh- they're showing on people using it like with with a shoulder strap. But honestly, this seems great for me. I would love to have a little tiny baby, itty bitty micro clutch. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just so low profile. And so when you're not using, when you, when you just have your camera, you know, sitting there in a bag or something, it's not really in the way, but it does seem like it would give you a better grip. I like this little Swiss plate that it comes with. It's yeah, because I think the issue with that, they there's like a little metal plate that they include that screws on at the bottom of it. And I realized what that is, is that they kind of have to do that to get it into the position they want. Because, I mean, that plate's kind of designed so that it puts a second strap mount, like, at the bottom of the grip on the right side. So, you know, most right. cameras have the, the strap mount on the top. And then, you know, you need a, for this type of thing, you know, you need, like, a second point of contact in the bottom. And so that's what that metal plate's for. I don't think we talk enough about, on this podcast... The eyelets on cameras. <laughs> I don't know if we've talked about them at all. Exactly. Do you, do you have opinions? Oh my gosh. So the X-H2S, it's it's built in. There's nothing that dangles. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, here's a gap in the body. And they're just, they're just perfect. And that's exactly what I want. And the, yeah. And the cage that I we have from small rig, like he uses that as one of the clamp points. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And that's what I want. It doesn't jingle. It's not a problem. It's just, it's like, it's solid and it's built in. That versus these little like eyelet rings where you run a triangle through and they're like jingle, 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 jingle. Mm-hmm. And you're wondering, man, are, is the, are these little wire pieces going to hold my you know $5,000 worth of camera yeah. gear? I, I have that on the uh, X-T30. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the little triangle pieces is kind of like bent out a little bit and I need to replace it because I actually had the, 
you know, I have one of those peak design little toggle things, yeah. you know, run through it. And like I was, you know, walking around hiking and luckily it didn't actually like fail while I was walking. I, I was just sitting there and it kind of failed, but you know, like the little peak design toggle thing just kind of slipped out of that triangle what? thing. Yeah. And you know, you don't want that to happen. So I agree with you. That's a terrible design. It's like the thing out of nightmares. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like they, they, they try to try to soften the blow of these like triangle things by giving you like leather straps that kind of wrap around, but then it makes it more complicated to put your, your camera strap on the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a correct way to do it and you build the slots into the body. I agree. Or you get this little micro clutch thing. Well, I mean, like this this will pair great with that. That's true. It's not going to be like wiggling around all over the place. Now I gotta I gotta complain a little bit though. It's a little bit cheaper on the Kickstarter, but the MSRP for this thing is seventy dollars. Oh my gosh! What's the what's the price on the Kickstarter so uh, I can buy it right now? Fifty or sixty? Yeah. Okay. Fifty is is like Lucas is going to buy this without thinking about it too much. But seventy, I'm going to second guess myself. Yeah, so that, kick. That's a lot. I'm, 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 I'm just going to yeah. buy it right on the podcast. Kickstarter, micro, clutch. Boop. Look at that thing. Oh, man. They have they have 6,807 backers and $711,000 pledged, which says to me that people are more interested in self-leveling tripods than they are interested in <laughs> micro clutches. You're right. It does look like the... Uh, it looks like they're $50 or more to, to get the... Um, the Kickstarter one, but the, mm-hmm. and this this is saying the MSRP is sixty five dollars. So I, I think that's actually been re- revised a little bit. But I mean, I I kind of get it because it has that metal plate. So I know that that adds cost. But sixty five dollars for this little thing is uh, to me that's a hard sell. Peak Design makes really good products, and they if do. they're charging if they're charging sixty five dollars for this, to me it says. This is worth $65. Well, you're just going to have to buy one at $50 I mean, and let me know. I know that I sound biased because I own a Peak Design 45 liter backpack and you a do. tech pouch and a strap and the uh, field pouch. And a capture clip. And a capture clip. Oh, boy. Hashtag not sponsored. Hashtag not sponsored. I I, really, I like Peak Design stuff. They make really good stuff. They do. They do. But like also, they, they exist in this market where everything else is the same product from China rebranded. Yeah. I mean, that's what sets them apart, right? Like, that's why we talk about them because their stuff is unique. But yeah. I, I don't know. They they're they stand out in the market to me. Yeah. So, oh, wow. Look at that. You can get a version that has an I plate or an L plate. Mm-hmm. And so you can get it to work if you have a, just kind of a camera that's, that's similar to like a Leica where it doesn't have a real grip. Yeah. You can put this on your Leica Q2 that mm-hmm. you're going to buy. Or Sure. Or you can get it if you like your camera has like a real hefty duty yeah. grip, like a Z8. Mm-hmm. Cool. All kinds of options. Mm-hmm. I want this Kickstarter to have it come in a different color. Like if you sign if you sign up for the Kickstarter, you can get it in Sage. Ooh. But then maybe you can't get it. Or you know they they came out with the Peak Design Everyday Backpack. No, the Travel Backpack 30 liter. And if you bought it through this other company, Huckabee Huckle Huckle. Barry B, that company, they make the they make the jet the, the flannel that um, Pedro Pascal wears in The Last of Us. That company, you could get it in this like desert gray. Like, oh, and it was, yeah, it was like, a, like a exclusive color. Yeah, but you can only get it through Huckabee, mm. Huck Huckab- Perry, Huckatown. <laughs> it's gonna be in the show notes. <laughs> Whatever. I, I think you can still buy it, but you can only get that color through them. I want 
that color for this, but only for the Kickstarter. Yeah. And then I'll that buy way, the Kickstarter. That way you can feel like you got an exclusive product. Yeah. And that way it's on top of the fact that I feel better than everybody because I'm using Peak Design products. I also have a color that they can't get. No. Nah. Mm. Oh, man. How very, Where is ex- it? how very exclusive exclusive of you. I want this thing so bad that doesn't exist now. Yeah. <laughs> it would go so great on your monochrome like a Q2. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it would. <laughs> Actually, it would, it would look pretty cool on that. <laughs> but probably have to get it in black or white so mm-hmm. that uh, people didn't think the camera was in color. Yeah. Yeah, you can't have them assuming mm-hmm. that of you. Anyhow. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. I like it. Well, got anything else today? No. All right. That's it for the show today. Thanks for listening. And we'd encourage you to rate the show on iTunes and tell a friend, but only if you enjoyed it. You can find out more about us on our website at cameragearpodcast.com. We'll be back with more next week.